Hello, Blenders, and welcome to episode number 70 of Real Blend, a podcast that is fairly confident that Jake is a British citizen now. <laughs> Jake, how much? How home. annoyed would you be if I did the entire podcast with a British accent? I challenge you to actually try to do that. I would assume your British accent is fairly convincing, too. I don't know. If anything, it's probably borderline offensive, if anything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not Madonna, so I probably shouldn't try to fake a British accent. I want to point out for people who might have missed it, go back and listen to last week's episode because Jake's uh, Texas accent comes out a lot over the course of, yeah, over the course of that episode. I picked up on it a number of times. Uh, This is episode number 70, a nice round number and an action-packed show uh, that is coming to you guys this week. We have Ma and uh, Rocketman talk. We're going to talk about The Perfection, that Netflix movie that was out there. We are going to have a very special interview later on this episode with Rocketman producer Matthew Vaughn. And we've been told uh, going into the interview that we can talk all things X-Men with him and the Kingsman franchise and, of course, uh, his journey to bring Rocketman to the big screen. But we are down one man this week with Big Daddy Kev on vacation. So that leaves myself... Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and my brother in blending, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago, holding down the fort. Jake, start by telling people where you are, and we will get to stories about why you are there uh, in a minute. I, and before I do that, did, did we ever discuss bringing Gabe on as the third person, or did was that just blown us up? No. Yeah, never. Never an option. Never an option. No, no. I, I, well, here's why. I'm, I'm tired of throwing that out there as like a tease, as like a, a hook kind of thing because you can only pull the football away from me so many times lucy before i just start stop offering it right so it's just you and i today see that's what we should do we should start telling him he's not allowed on the show and then he'll yeah. want to be on the show <laughs> there was a moment in last week's show to tear down the curtain a little bit where gabe punched into this into the show and we thought it was like an official like he's chiming in, but he was really just letting us know that like, I'm going to cut this later, but you guys are doing something <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but I was excited for a minute there. All right, where are you? Uh, I am in Liverpool, England, which is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the geography of England, it's about a couple of hours north of London. And I'm here because Liverpool, if you don't know, is the home of the Beatles. Uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney grew up just a couple of miles away from uh, from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, Strawberry awesome. Fields is just a couple of blocks away from where I am right now. Penny Lane is just a couple of blocks away from where I am. And I'm here because I'm going to interview um, uh, Danny Boyle and uh, and uh, Richard Curtis for and, and Lily James and the newcomer, I forget his name, Hamesh Patel, I think his name is. I believe that's it, yeah. I believe that's uh, it. For the new movie Yesterday, which if you're not familiar with it, the entire premise, which I think is a really, it's a really clever premise, is a guy gets into an accident and wakes up in the hospital and he's the only person who remembers the Beatles. And uh, and I think it's a really cool premise. I love Richard Curtis. I think his screenplays are fantastic. I love, I think About Time is, is some truly uh, underrated work. Love Actually is amazing. And then uh, pairing up with Danny Boyle, I think, is a really, really interesting pairing. Because, uh, you know, they each have made very quintessential British movies, but almost on opposite sides of the track. If you look at Four Weddings at a Funeral and Train Spotting, they came out around the same time, but they could be not be more different about what it means to have like the British experience. So I'll be curious to yeah. see what happens when you put those two together. And you haven't seen the movie yet? I have not. I see it in just a couple of hours, but I, but I'm a, okay. I'm a big Beatles fan. Um, and I, like I said, I think it's a really clever premise and, uh, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. 
All right. Well, before we get into reviews, then I just want to talk about uh, Liverpool because you actually just went on a really cool tour. Uh, a Beatles. Is it like an official Beatles tour? Or did someone just sort of take you guys around? Yeah, someone just kind of took us around because everything, you know, what's so funny is that everything's just kind of there. And maybe it's because it's a Wednesday afternoon and it's kind of that quintessential British weather where it's kind of gloomy and a little drizzly. But each place we went to, there really wasn't anyone there. It was very sort of low key. I mean, like we get to, I, I, I expected to have to fight the crowds at uh, Strawberry Field. Uh, and it's really, there wasn't anyone there. It's just kind of a gate right now. Um, you know, if you're not familiar, Strawberry Field uh, was an orphanage, but also sort of this playground that John Lennon used to go to as a kid. And John Lennon was raised by his aunt, who used to hate that he would go over there and play as a kid. And that's where there's a line in the song that it's nothing to get up about because it's him saying, look, look, it's not a big deal. I'm just a kid going to play at this playground. But because it was a playground for an orphanage, I guess his aunt didn't want him to, to, to be there. But really, it's just this big red cast iron gate with these sort of two pillars that say Strawberry Field on it. Um, but just, I mean, like that's and, and from there, we walked to John Lennon's house. Um, his, his, uh, like his childhood home is there and a couple of blocks away is where Paul McCartney grew up. I guess they were two years apart, so they didn't really know each other that much, but it's crazy to think that they, um, really just kind of came from just a couple of blocks away from each other. Ringo came from a little bit, um, of a different place, uh, a little different, a different neighborhood. It was sort of a, a lesser neighborhood, I guess, of, of Liverpool. Um, I don't know. I think George was significantly younger than everyone else, but, um, But just this, and then like, even like Penny Lane, you know, you go to Penny Lane and, you know, I expected these big signs and I really expected that. That's the thing. They haven't really, and I mean this as a compliment, cashed in on it. I mean, yeah. it's here and there are plenty, there's like a, a you know, there's a, a Beatles store if you want to go buy Beatles stuff. And, and there's like a, a Beatles museum if you want to go check that out. But aside from that, the, the places themselves are not these like really touristized destinations. I just think I just made up a word, but it, they, they haven't really, they, they it, it doesn't feel cheap. It still feels authentic. Like at any moment you feel like Paul or Ringo could just walk by. And I, and I respect that a lot. I, I liked it a lot. But that big statue, I see everybody's taking pictures in front of the statue of the four of them. Where is that? Like a downtown? That is a couple of blocks. That's sort of here uh, near the docks. Um, what's actually interesting is it's actually near an orange and white striped building. And I kind of, and it sort of stood out because it was sort of a brightly colored building. And I asked someone what that building is. Quick sidebar, but a different sort of movie if we're looking at it. That was the home of the White Star Line, which is where they came up with the plans and I guess designed the Titanic. And, oh. you know, if you remember, Titanic had the Liverpool stamp on the side because uh, it was a Liverpool product. And apparently this building, which is right next to uh, the, the Beatles statue, just a couple of blocks from where I'm sitting right now, um, where uh, on April 14th, 1912, when it sank, a lot of people, like families, apparently hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people gathered around this building, all banging on the doors and windows trying to find out what happened to their loved ones. So just it's interesting. Every corner you walk to in this in this town has some sort of really cool history. And, you know, this was a big place for people that came to America. A lot of people came out of Liverpool and then from Liverpool would go to America. So if you have descendants that came from Europe or from England, there's a good chance at some point you have a family member who stepped foot in Liverpool at some point, which is kind of interesting. That's amazing. Can you and Patrick Stoner recreate the Titanic pose in front of that building? Only if I can be Kate. Only if I can be Kate. (laughs) Of that's course. a much that's a much funnier joke for anyone who knows Patrick Stoner. I I, I feel bad for any of our listeners who don't know Patrick Stoner because you don't realize how funny that image actually is. 
If you don't know him, uh, do your research. All right. We have uh, reviews uh, in this week's episode, and we have three brand new reviews that we're going to rifle through really fast. Again, if you guys send us reviews, um, you can either go to the uh, iTunes Apple page, the Apple iTunes page for Real Blend. Uh, we are now at 101 star ratings. Um, wow. Unless, yeah, I know. I haven't checked unless we've gone up one more. And then we picked up these three new reviews. This first one is from Chris Fish 21 who says, listening to Sean, Kevin, and Jake is like hanging out with friends. I love their in-depth knowledge of film and their varying opinions about them. Keep up the great work. Woo! With an exclamation point, which I'm going to assume is a John Woo shout-out. I actually so- think that that Chris Fish 21 <laughs> is one of our yeah. former guests on the show. I believe that's Chris Van Vliet. Oh, really? I say that just because he's a big fisherman, and yeah. he has a fishing company called Woo. Well, then that's a Ric Flair Woo. Uh, well, it's probably a reference to, yes, because Chris yeah. is also a big wrestling fan, which I'm sure that's a reference to Ric Flair. All right. That's a Ric Flair. Right? I don't I don't nice. know that. I don't, he, he didn't tell me that he left a, um, a review, so I'm not entirely sure. But if it's not him, that's a really crazy coincidence. <laughs> and I love Van Vliet. We need to have him back on. Uh, next one's by Joel McFarlane, who says, Real Blend is the real deal. And he says, this podcast is a, in all caps, must listen for any movie fans. Every week, I cannot wait to hear... What Jake, Sean, Kevin, and producer Gabe have to say about their latest adventures in movie review world. Well, now that's ironic, right? Because Gabe has nothing to say yeah. about his adventures in movie. Oh, he's got plenty to world. say once we stop recording. Yeah. Just then you can't shut the guy up. It. Right. Or text messages all the, day in and day out. Uh, their passion and friendship shine through with every debate they have. And the online community that they have created is second to none. Keep up the amazing work. And Dunkirk in all exclamation points. The community is another thing that, uh, like last night, there was a Fat Thor conversation on social that I, I believe at one point reached 150 to 200 replies. Um, and I'm really. Is this on Twitter? Yeah, on Twitter. Um, how divisive the Fat Thor. Like, this is a, this is a deep rooted conversation of some people being really upset that they're using Thor's depression. Uh, for punchlines and other people really liking the fact that Marvel's going after or exploring PTSD in different fashions. And I'm realizing that this is a, a huge divide in the Avengers Endgame camp. And we've had this conversation on the show a number of times. But the community had a ton of fun last night sort of debating it uh, under the Real Blend Twitter, which I thought was was pretty entertaining. I chimed in every once in a while, and but then let them I, I just let them sort of go with it because they were... They were in depth in their in their discussion of all things Endgame. So. Do you know who came up with the term blenders? Uh, I think it was me. Was it? Was it me, Game? Yeah, Gabe says it was me. Okay. Um, I like it. Uh, okay. Last one by Peabody seventy nine. This is a long one. Uh, welcome to Real Blend. Oh, oh, this is okay. So this is Pete, who we met at the Chicago uh, meetup, who I called Chris ah. because he says. AKA Who, and he changed Bond. his his Twitter handle to not Chris. <laughs> not Chris, and every time I see it, I feel like such a tool. As you should. I'm doing that. Yeah, I do. Um, a podcast that's not just a great show, but a great community as well. As a standalone podcast, you'll be entertained to the fullest. If you're into technical talk about film, you will quickly gravitate and relate to Kevin's enthusiasm and full geek out moments. If it's structure and attention to story detail you crave, then Jake's your guy with some of the most intelligent and exceptional insights 
on films I've ever heard. And if you just love everything about movies, Sean will always be that voice. Their collective knowledge and also passion Sean's for there. the... Uh, yeah, and also... <laughs> And also, Sean, uh, the excitement and hold on, wait, their collective knowledge and passion for the industry is palpable from their first episode on to the most recent. The excitement and entertainment value never slows. But what is best about this group is their 100 percent sincere friendship, their love for film and their collective hand in bringing a group of strangers together via social media, all with the similar love for cinema and entertainment. Now, again, I'll point out these people get together without us now. They they they're very happy to have a group where they can go hang out and talk film and they discuss the podcast. But in general, they just debate a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. The community that has been created by this podcast is one of the best I've ever been a part of and exists because of their passion and our mutual love and respect for what they do. This is great. Thank you guys for everything. Jake, you're my guy, but I can't call out solo name scene. So I'll just finish with Dunkirk. Signed, Pete, a.k.a. Nitro, a.k.a. Not Chris. A.k.a. Not Chris. <laughs> See, if you hang out with us long enough, you get a you get a fun nickname like that. Um, if you hang out with us long into... enough, we won't remember your name. <laughs> yes, I knew he was Nitro. I got that part right. Uh, talking points. I want to start with uh, this broke shortly after we recorded our most recent episode, the Terminator Dark Fate trailer. Jake, let's start there um, because I don't. I'm not excited about this franchise, and I wanna. I want to give every movie a pass. And and later, when we discuss Aladdin, I will let you know that sometimes expectations set really low can help. Um, but my expectations after this one seem really, really low. Was there anything in that trailer that, that told you this is going to be um, uh, worth checking out? I mean, it, just for the sake of seeing Linda Hamilton and Arnold on the big screen together, like, sure, like, that's, that's what piques my interest. But... That first trailer just looked like all the other crap we've gotten from that franchise over the last, at this point, what, 15, 20 years? Oh, yeah, it's about 20 years. Going back. Um, I mean, it's been almost 30 years since we got T2, um, which is crazy. But, I mean, honestly, when it come, at least when it comes to this franchise, James Cameron has lost all credibility in my mind. Because I feel like, tell me I'm wrong, I feel like no. every time one of these movies comes out, he steps yeah. forward and goes, yeah. I'm telling you guys, forget the other ones. This is the one. I put my name on it. And it comes right. out, and it's crap. And we yeah. all thought, once again, after falling for it again, well, he got Linda Hamilton to come back. So maybe, just maybe, we should believe him on this one. And his name's slapped all over it. And once again, he's saying, forget the other The other ones didn't even exist. The other ones yeah. aren't even a thing. Forget those. Those are crap, even though I put my name on it. Those, that's crap. This is the one. And it looks like it looks like the same thing, dude. It looks like Genesis and, and now, uh, Salvation. Actually I, actually, I didn't think Salvation was that bad. But it looks like all the other ones. If he was directing it, would you feel any differently? I don't even know if I would. I kind of just feel like every story they could tell in this universe has kind of been... <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, didn't didn't we say everything we needed to say with Judgment Day? Like, isn't isn't that kind of it? Isn't that sort of the, the end of the story? Yes, I thought so. And they're doing what Halloween did. You know, in that they're literally saying we're just a sequel to T2 mm -hmm. and that everything that happened in three, four and five legitimately in canon uh, did not does not exist. Right. And I don't know. They've people are asking about John Connor. Like, where is he? Where's Edward Furlong's character? Where is what happens? Could to John he be Connor? a surprise actor in it? Could it could it turn out that Edward Furlong's in it? I mean, sure, he could be, but I don't even know if that makes me interested no. in it. I don't necessarily care. I just feel like we've seen it in these two previous ones. He's 40 um, years I, old and still riding a dirt bike. 
I'll say this much. Um, Tim Miller did a great job with Deadpool. And I'm excited for him as a director. And when he came out at CinemaCon in Las Vegas and, and did the presentation for this, his enthusiasm for the franchise was palpable. Like, he was near tears because he was so excited to be given the opportunity to play in this sandbox. And he adores the first two movies. And he kept saying that he and Cameron have come, come up with a story that got both of them so excited. And I want to choose to believe that. But did you see anything there? Any footage? Yes. Um, there's a scene in that's shown in that trailer of what looks like uh, naked Mackenzie Davis fighting police officers. We saw uh, that sequence in full. Um, and then we saw essentially the trailer, which was um, the the fight on that bridge. And then Linda Hamilton shows up and shoots the Terminator out. Um, so mostly that. But the the scene we saw in full was like a young couple seeing one of those Terminator flares when they show up from the future and then going down to investigate it, finding naked Mackenzie Davis, and then the police show up and then she fights off the police in a pretty big, you know, action fight scene. And it looked, it looked okay, but it looked like most of the things you've seen in the Terminator franchise. Um, talking about franchises that are still clinging to, <laughs> to life, Ridley Scott, now that Fox is uh, in the Disney camp, is saying that he is still planning his third Alien prequel. And I believe you said to me uh, the other day in London that you like both Prometheus and Dude, Covenant. I like Prometheus. So, I, I never, here's what I was like. I love Prometheus. I like okay. Covenant. But Okay, so you're on board. I'm on board. I, the only thing that concerns <laughs> me is, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we hear like a year or so, maybe more ago, that he said that the third Alien prequel would not feature the Xenomorphs? I, oh, I don't know. I, I don't remember. That. He I says a lot. He does say. He he's like Tarantino, where he, he just sort of says things, yeah. and and, yeah, yeah. and very little ever actually ends up coming to fruition. I I heard that. If that's the case, then no, I'm not. I'm not interested in an alien movie with no alien. Um, but I'm, I'm reading the details of this plot right now. Um, I'm all for it, man. I, I I I'm into. I I love the xenomorphs. I think they're one of the greatest movie monsters ever. Um, yeah. I think Michael Fassbender is really interesting in those movies. I think David is is a really interesting character, um, and and I I'm really curious to see where it goes after he basically kills everyone from Covenant. Now he remind me of the end of that movie. He's kind of leaving with like a bunch of eggs, isn't he? Yeah, he's leaving with a bunch of eggs, and doesn't he put everyone sort of in those cryo sleep chambers? And then right as they're I all falling so. asleep, they all realize that he's actually because they thought he was the good. David, but turns out right, right, he's right. the bad David, and he puts everyone to sleep, <laughs> right. and then and then he goes off. Okay. Eventually, yeah, it's got to the only thing is I feel like it just keeps getting further and further away from Alien, and eventually it's got to tie up. That's my only thing is if you're going to keep making these movies, you have to bring us to the beginning of Alien, and I feel like yeah. as of now, I, he's given me nothing that says that we're heading in that direction. No. In fact, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the thing that I still love about the initial Alien was how streamlined and, and tight-knit and claustrophobic it, the whole thing felt. So, so, so maybe I know Cameron, I it's time to think of it less about – because I don't really don't think we're going to find out anything about that ship that crashed on that planet from right. Alien and more about like, well, here's just sort of another universe where those creatures existed. Yeah. Well, Which I'm we'll cool see. with. I, I, you didn't even like, really you didn't even like Prometheus? 
no, I did like Prometheus, and I liked a lot of the big ideas that he brought up in Prometheus, and I just thought he flushed a lot of them away in Covenant. Like, I got really disappointed in Covenant. And uh, But again, every time I kind of write Ridley Scott off, he comes back with something like The Martian, um, or something like Prometheus, which I thought was sort of above his pay grade. Um, and then he mails in a, a couple of schlockers, um, but... I'm not ready to dismiss him completely. Covenant felt like him responding to people that criticized him for Prometheus. I felt like he got a lot of flack in Prometheus because it was promoted as an alien prequel and the xenomorphs weren't really in it. And a lot of people railed on him for that. And so it felt like he's like, okay, well, you want xenomorph action? Fine, here. And he took away all the big ideas and just gave us really kind of big, loud xenomorph action. Well, and I don't want to sidebar too far off of this, but this is becoming a really dangerous thing that that we're traveling down of filmmakers responding to fan criticism. Because last night, I don't know if you paid attention, but the embargo lifted on Godzilla reaction and everyone was like, too much Godzilla, like too much monsters, like it's just bombastic monster battles. And that was like the reaction to the first Godzilla. It was like, well, not enough Godzilla. He doesn't show up until the last 30 minutes or somewhat. Now it's overkill. And then in another example, the Sonic movie is getting delayed because they show Sonic the Hedgehog and everyone's like, nope. Don't that, is a dangerous, that. that is a dangerous move. My, my biggest knock about the, the 2014 Godzilla isn't that they didn't show Godzilla enough. It's that when they didn't, the human characters are not that interesting. Like Jaws, I'm fine with not seeing the shark because yep. Quint is fascinating and, 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 and Hopper is fascinating. It, like, it, it's, those, like, just make your, your humans interesting enough to sustain me in between the places we see the monster. Aaron Taylor Johnson is not going to entertain me for two hours. No, very true. Um, and so one filmmaker who we know is not going to bow to uh, fan influence. <laughs> He's going to deliver his vision no matter what. We got new Christopher Nolan details yeah. uh, shortly after we recorded in London. And it turns out his new film is going to be called Tenet, which I don't love. <laughs> Not the best name in the world, but I don't really know what it means. Oh, God, do we have to live with Kevin shouting that at the end of episodes moving forward? (laughs) Why does Nolan love his one-word titles? Interstellar, Dunkirk, uh, Memento, Inception. Insomnia. Insomnia. If it's not a Batman movie, he's essentially going for one-word titles. Now, he, again, is kind of keeping a lot of details close to uh, his vest or close to his chest, but... He's saying that it's set in the world of international espionage. The, uh, not necessarily a log line, but people who would claim to know what it's about is essentially that Nolan, instead of just taking over the Bond franchise, decided he would try to make his version of a Bond movie, right? That's what it sounds like. It's going to globetrot from eight different countries. Uh, he's starting to line up his cast. He's got Robert Pattinson. I forget who else is he's lured into this one. It's so an, um, uh, uh, John David Washington. Oh, right. Yeah, right. John David Washington's lead in it, actually. I bet Michael, I think Michael Caine's going to be in it. Yes, of course he is. It's a Nolan movie. So we don't know a whole heck of a lot about it, but it's starting to come together slowly. And uh, now we know it's called Tenant, and uh, we'll follow through. Gabe is sending me, oh, the IMDb link. All right, let me see who else is in this thing. Is it just uh, me or, or without Kevin and his puns, does this show move a lot faster? <laughs> That's not a knock at Kevin. I, I love you, Kevin. Oh! That's not a knock at Kevin. Do- do you know who's going to be? Oh, my second? God. Please don't. Aaron Taylor Johnson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh God. Uh, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, 
who was great in Widows and good and good in Guardians. Kenneth Branagh, who was in uh, Dunkirk. Clements Posey, who was in one of the Harry Potter movies. Michael Caine, uh, John David Washington, I think you mentioned, and Aaron Taylor Johnson is who's lined up for the the new Nolan so far. So I'm in. We shall see. I'm in. You're in. I mean, but you know, the thing is too is that like you know, set in the world of espionage, like that could mean anything. Like his his titles or or his descriptions, initial descriptions of his movies are always so vague. Right. And it'll probably involve some sort of time travel or a uh, celestial bookcase. Yes, God, I hope so. He talks to Murph. talks to Jessica Chastain from miles away. Uh, we both agreed. Uh, I don't know if this was on the show or if we talked uh, in between uh, recording that we were going to go see Aladdin uh, over Memorial Day weekend before we recorded again. Jake swore uh, that we would go out of our way to see Aladdin, and so uh, during like, my like three day weekend. I said to my family, I said, look, I have to, I have to go. Like, we're Oh, did you mean Wednesday. the new Aladdin? The new Aladdin, oh, yes. Oh, well, clarify one next time, dude. Will Smith is the Because I'm ready to talk all animated? about Robin Williams. Are you really? So uh, I mentioned earlier that expectations being low can actually help uh, your opinion of a movie. And I'm going to tell you guys, I really liked it. I really liked I'm hearing that. I'm hearing Aladdin. that a lot. Yeah, it's it's pretty entertaining. And even better than that, I liked Will Smith as the genie. I'm hearing and that too. Parts that this is what I don't understand. I literally saw the song and dance Never Had a Friend Like Me at CinemaCon. And when they just showed it to us, it felt so douchey. Like it was like this does this doesn't work. But in context, somehow that scene, same scene, but it was just it, it was good. It was better. And the when he shows up for Prince Ali and they sing Prince Ali and he shows up for the, for the first time as the prince. Great. Just a great song and dance. Great choreography, like huge colors, musical numbers. It's it's a little long. It gets a little slow, you know, it, it during parts. And I will say that a whole new world when they got to that, I was like, all right, well, this is going to be a huge number. Here we go. That felt like a bad cover. Like that felt like a couple got up at karaoke who can kind of sing. And I think both of them are able to sing, but that number in particular just felt hollow. Um, It felt like you were watching a high school version of, because they're on the magic carpet. It didn't look very realistic, but the rest of it, Guy Ritchie did an amazing job. The the main city, Agrabah, is that how you pronounce it? Looks great. Like it looks like they literally went and shot, you know, at this city even though i know most of it's green screen um the kid who plays aladdin is fantastic the girl who plays jasmine is great and, and really really doug will smith as a genie that 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 makes me happy I, I will i will make a point because i haven't seen godzilla either so i will i, I have some catching up to go, i've got to do uh whenever right. i'm back stateside uh this weekend now i'm not saying that it's great you know <laughs> but i'm saying if you went in expecting it to be the train wreck, and we have said on the show a couple of times that it's going to be a disaster, uh, it's better than that. Um, the movie that God, is I hope not they put quite... that quote on, on the DVD box. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's great, Sean O'Connor, real right. great. But if you expect a train wreck, it's not quite that. Um, let's let's talk the perfection because both of us went into this with pretty high expectations. Again, based on the set chatter. by Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, Kevin did set them pretty high. Although now that I go back over it, I don't know if he he just kept saying that it's really messed up. But I couldn't tell if that meant good or bad. Um, but you went into it with high hopes. What were your What was your takeaway? From I, the, the, I gotta be honest. That first half 
I was super because there, there, it's kind of it's a, it's sort of two movies. It's sort of divided into half, and at one point it even kind of like pauses, and it's sort of like that's the the halfway mark. Well, tell people what it's about. Give them give them a rundown. So essentially, it is about a a former uh, musical prodigy who uh, after she who left a, a very prestigious music school to go take care of her ailing mother after her mother passes she then takes it upon herself to try to return to this school and see if maybe she can sort of pick up where she left off only to really find that she's kind of been i mean she's sort of welcomed but also mm-hmm. finds that her spot's been replaced like she's been gone for a couple of years they have they now have this new prodigy who's sort of this new amazing musician and they spark up a very very passionate relationship um but you can't help but wonder if maybe deep down, Allison Williams, who is uh, the girl who went away and came back, maybe harbors this very deep-seated jealousy. And that's sort of the premise of you kind of have to question her motives in this new passionate uh, friendship slash love affair that these two students uh, develop uh, as they venture out on their own uh, into China together. Yeah, I also thought it was... So with a movie like this, you kind of stick with it until the answers come. Yeah, right? like, you have to. Okay, I'm going to give it a pass. And we'll get into this when we talk about Ma later. It's the same kind of deal. Like, it's a weird movie, but you have to sort of give it um, some some slack until it starts to explain itself. And then either the movie's going to be really great because its explanations make a ton of sense, or it goes off a cliff and you don't believe anything. That's what happened to me with The Perfection. Like, once it got to a point where it was going to explain itself i was like oh god really this is what it is but i even thought like leading up to that it was kind of poorly made like there are long sequences where the one character played by logan browning who's the new student um is sick and we have to kind of figure out why she's sick but she's like violently sick and there's a long sequence on a bus where they're trying to get her help and it took like the lo- I was like this is just clunky like it's just poorly made and put together and then there's two times in the movie without giving anything away where it literally uses the rewind as a as a device like a visual device where you skip back through everything that you watched and then you watch the chunk of movie again from someone else's perspective and that was never effective to me <laughs> that was never effective to me i don't like when movies do that that seems really lazy well it also reminds you that you're watching a movie that is exactly true that takes you right out of the story and then you kind of realize all right well we got to get around to another explanation now the good news is but and also again this speaks to i think what happens with netflix movies when they're not made by the Korans and Scorsese's of the world, it felt like a TV movie. It felt TV sized to the TV production. It and- really felt like a TV movie to me in the back half. I got to be honest that that first half and even up to that scene that you were talking about, the scene uh, of her on the bus in China where, where she starts to get sick. Yeah. Because at that point I realized this is only halfway through the movie. Like where the hell is this movie going to go from? you like, we're like, she is just almost just ripping herself to pieces on a bus yeah. in the middle of a jungle in China and we're only halfway through. Where do we go? And that's why I was so into it. And that's why I didn't even mind that scene being so long because I kept thinking, we still have an hour to go. Like this is just yeah. – if, if this is – you know, Kevin Kevin kept saying how, how nuts this movie is going to get. And I was like, if this if this is just an hour, where, where do we go from here? And then right. it kind of just went like, oh, that's that's where we go. <laughs> that's what it is. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that will be – it will make more sense to people who have seen it. And it's not quite a spoiler but early on, when they when they first meet and they're at a party, someone else gets sick, right? 
and they talk about a pathogen, like a, to- a toxin that's uh, reported at a village. But that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. No. It never surfaces? Uh, other than, let's see, now that now I feel like, how do I answer this without getting into spoilers? Just text me later. Yeah. Um, someone who is varying up what she's doing, and this is getting us to This Week in Movies, Octavia Spencer. So let's get into Ma, because neither of us have seen Godzilla 2. Um, and we talked Rocket Man, but I want to get to I want to get to Ma. Octavia Spencer has never done horror, and she's been telling people on the uh, interview circuit that she took Ma as an opportunity to sort of challenge herself. Here's a three-time Oscar nominee, a recent winner. Uh, she won for Hidden Figures, is that right? She no, she won for, for the, help. the Help. She won for The Help. Okay, so this is her with Tate Taylor, who made The Help, uh, and they're both sort of trying out uh, horror. And I went into this thinking that like that they lean heavily into the body torture like these teenagers get they party at ma's house essentially and ma you don't know why she's opening up her house to these kids but it eventually goes south and becomes like a saw type situation oh i did not realize that's Um, the direction it went well i don't know if that's a spoiler i think that's kind of in the marketing um but the but it becomes one of the things where you try to go with the movie for as long as you can because you want to know why ma is doing this right and um i will say octavia spencer is really good in it she's very convincing and she has a lot of fun playing the deranged person. But when you get to the explanation of why Ma is doing it, it's du- it's so dumb. It's so dumb and really disappointing. And the only thing I'm going to say can I is, Can I guess what it is? Oh, sure. Yeah. How do I guess it without and you? And if you get it, if you get it, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that you got it right. Is it <laughs> is it a Friday the 13th situation? Friday the 13th? How so? Like that she's a... That, that she did like a group of teenagers do something to a kid she used to have. Therefore, she's taking it out on all the the, the children. Um, I mean, that's close enough. That's like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a Mrs. Voorhees, Jason Voorhees kind of thing. No, but you're on the right track. Okay. All right. I'll say that. All right. Yeah. And the only thing I want to warn people about this movie too is because I, I don't think you should see it. I, I really don't <laughs> think it's good. And I don't recommend it. But I want to say that they're lying to you in the marketing because so much of the marketing is in the torture stuff that she does to the kids. Like, oh, you got to see what Ma does to these kids. That is the last 10 minutes of the movie. Really? That's it. And even when it comes, it's not rewarding enough. So not not that good. Um, Neither of us have seen Godzilla. King of the Monsters. We'll both go out of our way to try and check it out before next week's episode. We both have seen Rocket Man. Now, how much did we talk about it last we week? We talked about it pretty extensively. I think it was a pretty glowing recommendation, yeah. and, and we got pretty heated about our uh, comparison between that and Bohemian Rhapsody. I do love that we're at a stage where these classic rock acts, whether it be Elton John, whether it be The Beatles, there's another movie coming out called Blinded by the Light. I kind of wish Kevin was here because he's seen it, uh, and it's powered by the mu- the music of Bruce Springsteen. I've also seen it. You saw that too? Yeah, I saw it. How is it? Oh, it's fantastic. It's but it's it? not really oh. about. Um, it, it's more along the lines of like a yesterday, where it's a movie that that is very much about the music of one particular act, um, yeah. without necessarily being about that person. Yeah, not a biopic at right. all. Right. It's not, but a, yeah, it it's not uses a biopic his about music. Bruce Springsteen. It's about a guy who uh, lived lives in a small town in England who is introduced to the music of Bruce Springsteen. And it's a true story. It's all about how it completely changed his life and really shaped who he ended up becoming 
as a person. Right. And it's really it, – whether it's about – whether or not – you know, I, it's great because I, I, I like um, Bruce Springsteen. But what's great about it is it's a really wonderful testament to the power of, of art and, you know, how our lives can be shaped by movies or music or whatever the case may be. I dare anyone that listens to this podcast – to see a movie like Blinded by the Light, and whether you like Bruce Springsteen or not is irrelevant, but not at least relate to the idea of being heavily influenced by something in pop culture. Okay. I actually love Bruce Springsteen. Um, oh, then I'm you're gonna then you're absolutely fan. gonna love it. The way that yeah. they represent him falling in love with the music by projecting the lyrics up on the walls, it's it's very well done. Did they do a junket? How come you guys got to see it so early? I think they we were in LA for a different Warner Brothers junket, and I think Warner Brothers had just bought it from uh out of, out of sundance and i think yeah, it, was I mean, it was it was not just us uh, a couple of press members but it was packed there were a lot of celebrities um no kidding in there uh and i think a lot of people that really wanted to come check it out i think they were just trying to kind of get the vibe and get the word of mouth like what okay like how do we because i don't think it comes out till later this summer maybe it is it's july or august and i think they're just they wanted to get a gauge on okay we spent all this money in this movie how do people actually feel about it Okay, good. A British guy learning about Springsteen. So you'll be back in England, I'm sure. Probably, to yeah. Speak to him eventually. You know yeah. what they should do? That junket is in Jersey. They that's should the do it in place. Jersey, right? Do it yeah. in Asbury Park. Let's, let's be Jersey. honest. That's America's ass. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. All right. Speaking of, uh, for the reference, oh, if you don't get it, I'm making a reference to the Born in the USA album cover. Terrible. That is really yes. That is America's ass. Um. We all saw Rocket Man. We talked about it in last week's episode. Make sure you go check out our opinion of that movie in last week's uh, episode, episode number 69. But we had the opportunity to hop onto Skype and speak to executive producer of Rocket Man and creative genius behind a number of great franchises, Matthew Vaughn. So here is our conversation with Matthew Vaughn on the Real Blend podcast. Dive into it right now. Guys, I just want to introduce Matthew Vaughn, the producer of the new Elton John biopic, fantasy musical biopic, Rocket Man. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Uh, I have to ask, because it seems that Rocket Man kind of owes its existence to the Golden Circle and the relationship that you built with Elton John on that set. Is that fairly accurate? Well, yes, in, in, in that being, I'd say that's the, like, was, a, was a catalyst in a much bigger, bigger, bigger role in life, you say, of Elton John. But I was lucky enough to work with him. And the whole thing started when I was asked, I just said, I remember reading about the Rocketman being, being announced at Cannes, I think three or four years earlier with Tom Hardy and Michael Gracie. And I was like, well... I can't wait to see it when, when, and what's going on. And then, you know, Elton and David was saying, well, look, everyone's asking us to make the PG 13. They're not offering us enough money. If we go, ah, they want to just cut us down to the bone. And, um, and I said, well, have you seen a Marv movie? It's exactly the sort of things I want to make. I want to make big, bold, entertaining R rated films. So, uh, I read, and so I read the screenplay and loved it. And, um, said let's go let's go to town and and then by that time gracie was doing um greatest showman so there was a director needed i was tempted to do it but i was committed to kingsman and uh i thought i'll bring dexter in and then uh got it all wrong i was i also was saying pretty loudly to everyone i really don't believe you can do a musical when the lead 
actor is lip syncing. I don't think anyone will ever buy a ticket to that. Cut to Bohemian Rhapsody making me look like a moron. But um, <laughs> I, I did believe that, and I sort of still do. I think um, I think that's what makes this film so unique is Taron singing. You know, it's like looking you know, at like Travolta in Greece. You know, when someone connects to the songs and just belts them out like he does, uh, it becomes a different thing. And I knew Taron could sing, and. Um, and and it was just a fun experience because you know uh, to make a movie with a bunch of friends who you all respect and you can argue with but know you're going to get through the arguments is um is you know you get you, you get to make a good film which i think we have you know i want to get to taron singing because i don't mean this you know in any way as a slight towards elton john but there are arrangements in rocket man that i you know love as much as the original compositions maybe even prefer to them and his version of of your song just the way he sat down and and composed your song in the moment you know i'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now good good uh, i'm glad you are that's <laughs> that's what was designed and um a lot of the arrangements was done by the mighty giles martin again an old friend of mine that that knew elton through through his father george martin and um but it was you know i, I worked with him on the golden circle rearranging cameo uh, words up and i remember having a lot of fun doing that and uh, he he was just um he, again, having Sir Elton saying, "Just go for it. Be brave. Don't, you know, don't be scared of offending." You know, he says, "I want you to push the boundaries and make me think." And Elton's having the same reaction, by the way. He's like, "Going, God, I wish I'd done some of the songs in that way." You know, he was very <laughs> impressed with it. That's amazing. Um, you know, the, the film has because it uses this structure of the the rehab and and Elton, you know, being able to sort of tell those stories. When I talked to Taryn at the junket, he mentioned they used the man in orange as their guide for the story. Um, and I'm I imagine that the act of sitting around listening to Elton tell story, like just fantastic stories. Like, did you get that experience when you're working with him on Golden Circle? And is that can you? I can't yeah, I imagine that him for twelve hours and. Um which we did, you know, we literally for 12 hours, well, there's a scene that didn't make the movie of him doing a duet with Julianne Moore singing, um, don't go breaking my heart. And I was just literally sitting on the piano during takes, dueting with him. <laughs> and I can't play the piano and him giving me lessons saying, no, try it like this. And he was amazing to, and telling us the most funny stories. And, you know, when you're sitting there and he's recounting his times of John Lennon and Presley and, the Beatles and Bowie and he just sit there and he, you know, it was like me talking about you know, ordering a hot dog in New York is you know, <laughs> so laissez-faire about it but at the same time humble and funny just very he's a very funny man Taron um, completely blows me away in this movie I mean I knew he was gifted but I realized now that I just had no idea of what he's capable of and I'm giving you credit essentially for introducing us to him in Kingsman he had a couple of things before that but what do you remember I want to know first film yeah what do you remember about auditioning him you know what did you you know he'd never done a movie before when he came in oh um um and he literally came in and uh and but he walked through the door and uh, in my I, I my the I've always said this people say how do you find these guys I said I just use my eyes and um, so what you guys see on screen I see when they walk through the door and um, and you just have to be brave enough that if you see someone's brilliant and it's obvious cast them and don't do the Hollywood thing of yeah he's brilliant but he's not a star so let's put someone in who's not brilliant and not right for the role and then you make the movie and you've got uh, I'm not going to be rude but there's you know how many films have you seen where 
you know, famous actors have been miscast in the role, and they, you know, the movie's terrible, and they're terrible, but only because they've been miscast because you know they're they have cachet in the foreign sales market how it used to be. So it's uh, it's yeah, I, I just cast. I've always just said you're better off. I mean, actually, I didn't say it for Hitchcock and. Um, Hitchcock and um, I'm so bloody tired. John Huston both said that you know directing is 90% casting, and and the whole movie is all about the cast ultimately because they're the people you know who are bringing it to life and that the public are seeing in the role. So the public don't really you know they, they don't comprehend too much. You know, hopefully they don't. You know, the, whether it's the music, the lighting, the editing, all that stuff should just wash over them. But the thing they do notice is is the acting. Well, I think it goes back to all your old films, uh, going back to Layer Cake and casting Daniel Craig in that role and, and the way that you were able to find... Daniel Craig, Jennifer Lawrence, I got told, don't cast. Um, Daniel, they weren't sure about. I mean, Dave, I, mean, I could go on and on and on. It's sort of, I, I should have been a manager, actually, if I kept them all on my... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read that, tell me if this is accurate, that you recorded Taryn singing a few Elton John songs to show to Jim Giannopoulos. Uh, is that accurate? I did. Well, yeah, well, not, well what happened? was uh, when we got involved in the film we started financing it um, everybody was a little bit snooty uh, even more so than I thought and so I just said look Taryn I'm getting you down to um, Abbey Road because people have just got to see what how you are more than the secret weapon you are the you know the except missiles of all missiles once people hear you and see you sing um, and then we did it and it sort of backfired at first because everyone thought it was fake <laughs> they're, they're going yeah 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 that's not real and I'm going no it's seriously there's no auto tuning there's no editing this is raw footage and they just didn't believe it because he was, he was that good that they weren't there that, that you know I was virtually having to get a bible out and swear on it <laughs> that's amazing um, and I do, will say that the movie does throw itself into another gear in the middle of Saturday night uh, when he shows up you know and it, it's yeah. sort of for me it's revolting. I remember when I first saw Greece and Saturday, well, not Saturday, um, uh, Summer Loving, I, it gives me, I don't know why I get the same vibe from that scene as I did when I first saw Summer Loving as a kid. I think, is that the song, Summer Loving? Summer Night. Uh, summer, Summer Night, Summer Loving? I'm, I know the song you're talking about, when, when they're both singing their different versions of the day. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's Summer Nights, actually. <laughs> Um, you handpicked Dexter for the project. Can you uh, fill me in on, on what it was about Dexter that you knew was right for this? Um, I knew the most important thing Dexter would do for the film is provide a, a safe, a, a cocoon of safety for Taron to really go for it and 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 show warts and all a character that is was you know it's very hard for an actor to go to the depths that he did in this in this film, and I just knew. Um, Dexter was the man to, um, to 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 do that. I mean, Dexter, his sets are the opposite to mine. They're very fuzzy and warm and lots of love. And and we have an expression that love it's a lovey set. And uh, yeah, um, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit more of let's get 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 the job done and and um, a bit more of a taskmaster than he is. But his his style was definitely better for this movie than mine. I kind of loved, too, when I sat down to speak to him and we talked about the theatrical experience, he went right back to That's Entertainment, you know, to talk about MGM and the big musical set pieces. And I can see that influence, you know, in so oh, many of the scenes. Definitely, and Busby Barkley. And, and really, the movie I made everyone watch when I was putting it together was All That Jazz. As right. Well. I just thought that was a really important 
film for the blend of what I call realism yet fantasy at the same time, which is, you know, a hard, hard thing to pull off. Uh, I find it amusing that you're about to compete against your old friend Guy Ritchie, who also has a big song and dance musical uh, in theatres. Well, I think it's more amusing for Guy as they rake in hundreds of millions of dollars. But, um, and we, we hang on with our, our fingernails competing. But um, you know what? I find it very satisfying. I've been actually been um, texting back and forth with him saying, isn't it amazing? It's 24 years when we first met and tried to make Lockstock that in England right now we're the number one and number two movie and we've sort of split the pot. And I, I was like, could you, if, I, if we sat there... 24 years ago saying that we would still people would still be giving, actually back then we we're just trying to get a job but but the fact that we even still have a job 24 years later is I am grateful and astonished and um and I'm I'm glad that we but we both got careers still it's sort of well, you know, I, in this business it's a long time to be you know 20 I mean I'm getting old now it's a real shame no but I also think it's great that you neither of you have been pigeonholed you're allowed to expand the types of stories you're each able to tell yeah, I think, but I think it's important. Otherwise, you stagnate, you know. And I, I'm terrible. You know, I look at some directors, and and they have them. You know, you look at some of the greatest directors. I, I'm not saying the names, but you go, what happened to them? Where are they? Why are they not working? And I think you do. You, it's very easy to to stick doing the same thing again and again because you probably get paid very well. But then your muscles don't grow anymore, and then and then suddenly someone's come in and stolen the territory. But I do. Um, uh, yeah, I just um, yeah, it's quite funny that we've got two musical. No, I, as I said, we're both we're both lucky, you know. But we both love what we do. Is there an irony that you're going against a Dark Phoenix retelling when you almost circled that story for a little while too? Yeah, well, I th- it's more than irony. I just think it's a, it's a sign of again, I'm getting old because you know you start building these spider webs as your career, and then you know they get bigger and bigger and more entwined. But yeah, it is a bit odd. I was laughing, going, going. This is sort of mad. I've got Aladdin on one side and Dark Phoenix on the other, and <laughs> and I sort of wish them both well, but at the same time, I don't want them to do too well because then I'm really buggered but um, but I think there's room for all of us and um, in England there definitely has been so you know in America there should be as well what is your um, initial reaction to the the feedback the, the feedback to Rocketman has been off the charts positive and you know people have been really responding to it with the early you know showing in theaters and and word of mouth going what's your what's your initial reaction to all of that um, relief uh, <laughs> excitement <laughs> And uh, sort of a little bit astonished because I'm not used to it. Because I'm, uh, as I said, everyone's already talking about um, awards and things. And I'm like, oh wow, this is a whole new thing for me. Um, you know, I, uh, the ones that we've I've never really made a movie that the the, uh, the, the shall I say the the um, the establishment have been that impressed by, shall we say? Well, but listen, the establishment seems to be changing their tune. You see things like Black Panther get into the best picture race nowadays. And it should have done. There's a lot of movies because I, I don't get me started on this because <laughs> I get so angry because I know how hard it is for those Marvel movies to be made to, you know, to consistently. And there's a lot of other big films that get ignored, but yet the, the, the craftsmanship to make those films, it's so much harder than these dramas that suddenly get all the awards but um i'm you know i don't know i uh, look i i've always said reviews and awards sadly don't pay the bills but um you know i wouldn't say no to some but at the same time um you know i'm just gonna carry on trying to just be entertaining that's my well, my job 
I do. I would love to get your opinion just on two properties that you have a, a close connection to, both Fantastic Four and X-Men. Are you one of the people who think it's uh, creatively satisfying that they will be under the Marvel Cinematic Universe umbrella? Yes, 100%. I think I actually always, as the man that produced the last terrible Fantastic Four, and I'll say that because I said it from day one, but no one listened to me. <laughs> um, I, I think Fan 4 is... As, you know, for me, it's the live-action version of The Incredibles. It's probably the most, I think, commercially viable um, Marvel comic. Um, you know, and you know, I, I'm and Kevin Feige will get hold of that and probably make a masterpiece. Um, and the X-Men world, if I was. I imagine that might get put on ice for a little bit. I think it needs a little bit of breathing time. They've made a hell of a lot since first class, if you think about it. And um, um, I, I imagine Fan 4 would be the thing I'd like to see them do next. Um, and do it, you know, Disney and Fan 4 and Marvel is a really potent um, combination. I also would love to see, you know, for them to sort of switch that up and become a period piece. You know, people always say the 1960s is a fertile ground to explore with the Fantastic Four. And uh, it just feels like the way that they should go with it. So, Well, it, it, well it's, that's when it was, you know, that's what I did with X-Men, though. It was it was because when the, these ideas were born and the sort of, the, you know, the fan four about the nuclear family and the dysfunctional family and the science uh, it's it's yeah it's an easier time I mean the, it's harder as you know superhero films in the modern world it's, it's and spy film everything in the modern world it's harder and harder to do because you know the technology and is is all out there you know Iron Man suit just doesn't seem that far away anymore does it I mean it's sort of odd but Iron Man suit when Iron Man came out was awesome you know in this that was probably late sixties early seventies Iron Man I don't know when that came out but um, <laughs> it's it's um, it's easier because it's an easier because the bad you know the black and white everything was more you know black and white you know bad versus um, good you knew what was what was what back then clearer boundaries and clearer horizons so um, yeah I love a period look I'm just done a period another period movie so I, 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 it's it's fun it's really fun well, it's, it's it's really good fun. And obviously, I'm not going to ask you for any type of spoilers for the prequel, but I am curious because when you branched off and created the Kingsman universe, you were really looking to create your own type of sandbox to play in. And you end up creating an original franchise that actually allows you to shift to a whole new time period, you know, and keep exploring that. So how exciting is that to be able to do that? It's like a dream come true. Um, It's it's when we came up with Kingsman, you know, thing in that pub with Mark Miller sort of seven years ago, it was a very much a thing of two fanboys getting drunk, lamenting about what's happened to spy movies. And then the more I've got involved in it, the more I, I just felt there's a, you know, was, was I planning a universe? No, but a universe is sort of, it's been like the big bang that all these other ideas are coming and, and um, out of, I don't know where they come, come from, but I'm excited because, the prequel is so different uh, that um, for me, it was a whole new muscle to go off and develop and I hope the public like it. I don't know. I mean, it, I'm very proud of it already, but it, it's very, very different. So some people, all the people who hated Kingsman will probably love it. And all the people who loved Kingsman might be going, what the hell has he gone and done? But hopefully we'll like it. Different in tone or just different in style? Different in every which way but loose, apart really? from an ape. 
No way. But... <laughs> oh, come on. Now you got me intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I will ask you this last one and get you out of here on this one. And again, thank you so much for your time and, and joining us. But Taryn has said, you know, the plan is to complete the story of Exe and Harry. And I'm wondering if that's still your plan and how hard is it to lock down Taryn these days? God, it's going to probably be a lot harder in the next... Yeah, as it's, um, no, no, but, you know, we... The journey began. You know, the thing about Kingsman, it's like any film. It should. It, it, the it always comes down to heart and the relationship of two people. Um, and Eggsy and Harry's relationship needs to be concluded. Um, it's been set up for the end. Of the last one was, you know, they've been sort of t- torn apart due to marriage and uh, you know various things. And now it's what it's 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 their um their last hurrah together. And then we'll see what happens. That's fantastic. Mr. Vaughn, thank you so much for your time and continued success. I hope Rocket Man crushes all the records. Uh, I, do you know what? I just hope people, I, I really mean this, if, if I just think, you know, I'm the man that's not keen on musicals, and this is a musical that if you, you're not sure about musicals will make you, it's, it's the most acceptable sort of what I call fanboy musical that fanboys could go see and go, hey, that was worth it. Well, I'm a jaded critic who doesn't go back to the movies that often, and I'm going this weekend to see it again. Because wow. first off, the songs have been stuck in my head f- uh, for weeks now. At this point, that's what happens with Elton's music. He's a genius, and that's yeah. He's a, he's a genius, and he wrote great songs. And and yeah, I, I'm seeing it. Even my kids were like, Elton John, what's that? And now they've heard the music, and they're like, there's I'm try having to listen to them trying to learn it on the piano at the moment it, it, the fact that that hasn't driven me crazy shows how good the songs are <laughs> it's fantastic thanks again for your time I really appreciate it thanks and bye bye all right, everybody, make sure you go see Rocket Man in theaters. There are a lot of great choices at the theaters right now between um, Godzilla, between Rocket Man, still going out to catch um, things like John Wick 3, Endgame. Uh, there are great interviews you can go back and listen to on our own podcast. We talked to Chad, obviously talked to the Russo brothers, uh, and we thank Matthew Vaughn for hopping on and discussing um, all things film with us. That brings us to this week's Blend Game. We announced last week that we are playing... Catherine Bigelow Blend, another great uh, proponent of action and big screen cinema. Uh, to me, there's only one obvious choice, um, but I'll let Jake go first. To see if with me. Yeah, I, there's truly only one choice that you can make when it comes to this. But let's see if we're on. Well, it also it probably also depends on whether you're doing favorite or best. Um, Okay, so I'm gonna. And since I'm, we have not decided that for this show <laughs> ever, we're, 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 we're 70 episodes in. I still don't know what we're doing. I still don't know how so to play. Whatever you want to do. Uh, but I'm choosing do. one that kind of falls into both categories for me, which is Zero Dark Thirty. I just okay. think that is such a like Zero Dark Thirty is a perfect example of what it what true amazing perfected direction can do for a movie. I mean, mm-hmm. that movie is so perfectly constructed. And it just has her skill set all over it. I mean, from the beginning yep. all the way to the end. I mean, if you think about it, even just the um, the final act itself, you know, the whole movie was kind of just about like, oh, you know, the, the, they marketed it as come see, you know, the 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 seal, was SEAL Team 6 take yes. down Osama bin Laden. Yep. And, you know, that's really only the last 20 or 30 minutes. But right. even the first hour and a half of that movie is just so tight. I mean, I I was just sitting there in in scenes that were just conversations between actors just biting my nails. It is so unbelievably well acted, unbelievably well written, unbelievably well directed. It is just, I think, one of probably the most 
more underrated movies. Even though I think it got a Best Picture nomination, and I, I think it was pretty well received in the awards season. I still mm-hmm. feel like it kind of came and went, and people kind of disregarded it after a certain amount of time. And I just think that that is Catherine Bigelow at her absolute best as a director. And and, and whenever I think of uh, you know what movie I would point to to exemplify why she is one of the best directors working today, I would point at Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, let me tell you why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to say point got, rank, aren't you? It got a Best Picture nomination. You're correct. Uh, Chastain got nominated for Leading Actor. It got a screenplay and an editing. And then it won one Oscar for Sound Editing. Um, so it did do really well. And it's one of those movies that that one came out, I think, like right at the end of December in order to qualify. And then uh, sort of got pushed through this season. But you're right. It did do really well. We talk about this a lot in terms of movies that we pick as favorites and bests, and rewatchability is just one of the reasons why I can't do Zero Dark Thirty. Um, it was one of those movies where as soon as it ended, I was like, that is a fantastic movie that I will never watch again. I just have no interest in it. Um, and uh, I would choose for her, I even think it gets overshadowed um, by the work she did in Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker to me was a more effective, uh, I was more invested in the characters in Hurt Locker than I was in the ones in Zero Dark Thirty. Regardless, but the siege, you know, that eventually ends the the killing of Bin Laden is spectacular, spectacular filmmaking. Anytime I'm going to talk Catherine Bigelow, I have to say Point Break. Uh, Point Break is just... I am an FBI agent. (laughs) And we rave about Keanu and how good he is. Um, And yes, he's a little bit in those, in speed, Point Break, you know, he's a little cheesy. (laughs) He's a little uh, overblown. I think the John Wick franchise fits him better because he's underplaying it um, a lot of times. And and not that things are underplayed in that franchise. Like, I mean, people are getting killed left and right. But he's the, the center of it, right? Like, he's the gravitational pull that's sort of keeping John Wick together. And back when he was doing Point Break. But, but Point Break is just so... There's so many great action set pieces in that movie that we have discussed at length on this podcast. And it showed how great Catherine Bigelow is at, at filming action, right? How often do we talk about like when you get a lazy or um, inadequate action director, it's all choppy cuts and it's all, let, let me mask what I don't know how to do. I feel like it's a lot easier to see bad action being directed than good action. Cause if it's good action being, or if it's action being directed well, then you kind of forget that you're even watching a movie period, as opposed yeah. to it's much more apparent. It's much easier to call someone out for poorly directing action. Well, and I know you're off the Fast and Furious franchise, but I do think that that franchise finds good directors who at least can stage good action set pieces. I think F. Gary Gray can do it. I think James Wan was able to do it. Um, Justin Lin was, is very talented in that. Like that may be an over testosterone you know. But on the flip side, I'm franchise. excited for Hobbs and Shaw. So I so because because of how good David Leach is, right? And also, like, it I seems to just be fully aware of what it is. Yes, uh, the year that Zero Dark Thirty lost, um, it lost to Argo, which I find pretty fascinating because that was uh, you know not similar, but had a sort of political edge to it. But I thought put it in a more palpable palpable package. So I I have to go with. Point break, and I understand that even though he's on vacation, and I'm not even sure where Kevin is. Do you know where Kevin is? He's on a cruise right now. Last I saw, he was actually in Alexander Hamilton's home. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's putting some stuff on social that he and Lauren are there. Um, He recorded his pick. So let's throw it to Kevin, giving us his choice for hashtag Catherine Bigelow. Jake, Sean, good to talk to you guys. I'm here with Lauren, my beautiful wife. 
And uh, we are on a cruise. We're, uh, where are we? Where are we, are we are right currently now? in Antigua in the Eastern Caribbean Sea. Yeah, and we've been doing, we uh, left on Sunday from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and we uh, went to, what, St. Thomas, St. Kitts. St. Thomas, St. Kitts, and Nevis. Now we're in Antigua, heading to St. Lucia and Barbados for the rest of the week. And in Nevis, we went to uh, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton's, Hamilton's home. Uh, which, uh, which which was amazing. So, uh, all right. So we're doing uh, Catherine Bigelow blend, and I know she's made a, a ton of movies that we all love. So I'm gonna let Lauren go first on her favorite Catherine Bigelow film. I mean, this is just easy for me. Zero Dark Thirty because Jessica Chastain in that film. I think she should have won all the awards for that performance because it was a very internal performance and. It's a story that we kind of saw from a different side with that character. So, I mean, I know Catherine Bigelow's done a lot like The Hurt Locker, and I think Jeremy Renner's amazing in that, but I mean, like, just because Jessica Chastain alone kills it in Zero Dark Thirty, that's easily my pick as her best film. And, uh, Jake, I was just wondering if, um, if you'd heard about <laughs> Jessica Chastain's favorite Michael Bay movie. And now I'm going to pause for an awkward silence while Jake gets angry. Jessica Chastain's favorite Michael Bay movie is Jessica Chastain and Gain. Oh my god. Yeah, that was That's good. So bad. Sean, I know I know Sean's laughing. Jake's has probably has his palms in his hands. What's your favorite movie of hers? My favorite Bigelow movie is probably Point Break. And um, that comes down to probably just a personal reasoning of that. Um, I think the best movie she's ever made is definitely The Hurt Locker. Um, but just because of the sheer tension of what she built with that film. And obviously Renner's performance was brilliant. So was Anthony Mackie. Um, but Point Break just holds a special place in my heart because when I was in college, I was in a band called The Ex-Presidents, <laughs> and uh, that was named after the movie, obviously Point Break, and The Ex-Presidents, and The Bank Robbers, and uh, my lead singer, Tim, went by the name of Bodie, uh, so it just gave me a better appreciation for that movie. Also, I just think it's just Keanu Reeves in his element. He's amazing in that movie. And it's funny, like, like Keanu Reeves... I think he's a really great actor. I think that he gets pinned down to just the action guy from Speed. And um, I was talking to someone the other day. I was like, and I, I forgot that yet Reeves did Shakespeare. He did Much Ado About Nothing. Mm -hmm. The guy has an amazing filmography. Um, Patrick Swayze is incredible, clearly. That movie is just so well done. It's very 90s, but a lot of fun. Very classic action. Very, very fun character development. And you just genuinely love the relationship uh, that kind of builds between Swayze and Keanu Reeves and that tension of the you know being undercover and things like that. And I think a lot of people compare Fast and Furious 1 mm -hmm. to Point Break. Did which you ever see the remake? I saw the remake. Yeah, it was not Point good. Point Break remake? The stunts were cool, but the story was not great. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, yeah, so that's my favorite Bigelow uh, movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think that um, I also read the other day Patrick Swayze. Uh, he well, he's been that movie particularly was was that, was that was that bigger than Dirty Dancing for him? I don't know. I mean, for for females, no. <laughs> Dirty Dancing was like his ultimate. I, I think. I mean, like, I what feel year like all he pass away? Like, ugh, I can't. I he passed really away a couple years ago. Yeah. Not Sad. terribly long ago. Yeah. Well, obviously, the <laughs> cool thing about it, I always, and I always say this in regards to uh, actors and, and musicians, anybody who passes away, um, that their work lives on forever. I mean, I'm sitting here right now on a cruise ship in uh, the middle of the Caribbean, the Caribbean talking <laughs> about Patrick Swayze and a movie he made in the 90s. So uh, that's my favorite one. Jake, uh, Sean, I miss you guys and love you guys. And uh, thank you for 
letting us check in from the cruise. Miss you and love you too. Yeah, and we'll talk to you guys uh, next week. I was trying to think of a um, another pun before I went, and I'm trying to think <laughs> of how I want to. I don't know. I can't think of one. You're in vacation mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. As for audience picks. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty was chosen by Danny Gurch, uh, Chase Cusack, of course, uh, and several others. Chase and I actually uh, saw when, it together in New York. Did you really? He sat next to me. He guys- breathed really loudly. That's what I remember about watching it with Chase. That's what he's going to. That's the story he wants you to share, <laughs> that he breathed really loudly. It was a loud breather. It was like a Seinfeld episode. He was a loud breather. Alex Auerbach, uh, Martin Quibble, and many, many others, uh, of course, said Point Break. So it seems like you and I went with the two most popular ones. I do want to throw out uh, Strange Days, an early film by her. I've never seen it. really, really good. It's really good. You should check it out. Um, And basically, I just think she needs to be making more movies. Where has she been? been? She did Detroit. How is she not? Oh, right. Which I never saw. Did you ever see it? Did. I actually liked it. Did you? I did. I mean, it's 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 a very difficult movie to watch. It's not by any, you know. Um, but I thought it was very, very well done. And, and once again, kind of just got brushed away. I know a lot of people that didn't like it. One of those ones that feels like it's, it's there on Hulu or Netflix or one of those ones that pops up. I'm always like, oh, I should watch that now. And it just feels like homework and it's not what I want a movie to necessarily feel like. Um, for next week, partially because we were talking about the Terminator, partially because we were talking about Alien, um, we're going to go with a larger genre and we're going to play hashtag sci-fi blend. Have we ever done sci-fi blend? I don't think so. I don't think we have. Well, we're going to do it for next week. So you got to think big picture and come up with hashtag sci-fi blend for your favorite, because Gabe says always favorite, uh, sci-fi movie. And let us know your pick via email, uh, realblend at cinemablend.com. Of course, you can go to the Twitter page, uh, realblend, and you can play hashtag sci-fi blend and give us your picks. We'll be back to record a a new episode next week. What are we talking about next week? One of the movies that are opening. Oh, Dark Phoenix. We can finally start talking about Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Dark Dark Phoenix Phoenix. will open. Um, They pushed back Late Night a week. So I think we got to hold off talking about Late Night. Um, But honestly, by next week, we will have seen. I I do think we need to both go see Godzilla and talk about it. Are we, Gabe, you want me to announce who we're going to have on the show next week? I guess we can, right? All right. I'm going to put this picture up on, uh, on social, too. But in next week's episode, uh, we will have the first part of our conversation, and this will be a spoiler-free conversation of all things X-Men with our good friend Ty Sheridan. And of course you know that if Ty Sheridan is on the Real Blend podcast, we're going to talk Ready Player One with him also. (laughs) And Kevin brought up something to him in the interview. I'm not sure which part it is. Yeah, A really interesting connection between... His role as Cyclops in the X-Men films and Ready Player One, which was right in front of us. And I never even thought about that. And it blew my freaking mind whenever he brought up this connection. It was fantastic. It really did. And I think when he said it out loud that he didn't realize it either. And all of us were just like, oh, my God, you're 100 percent. Oh, my God. How how did we never see this? So that is an excellent tease for our uh, first part of our interview with Ty Sheridan next week. So listen. Join us back here next week. Uh, in the meantime, go to our socials. Give us a follow at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy, uh, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Of course, you can also drop us a review on our iTunes page. It means a whole lot to us. Helps us grow the show, of course. Uh, send us an email review if you're not on Apple iTunes. RealBlend at CinemaBlend.com. We will read them at the top of the show. Uh, we'll be back next week. And, uh, you know, Jake, 
Kevin's not here, so we basically have to end it the only way that... Uh, is this the episode where we don't end it with Dunkirk and we end it with solo name scene? All right, three, two, one. Solo, solo name scene! Happy birthday, Michelle. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.